0: Hello, my name is Bill Myers, and you're listening and watching "Writing Wrongs on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I have the privilege today of speaking with Sarah Vogel about her memoir, which is a true life legal drama entitled The Farmer's Lawyer, The North Dakota Nine, and the Fight to Save the Family Farm. It is a real David and Goliath battle that Sarah waged against the federal government to protect family farmers during the 80s farm crisis. Um, It is inspiring, it is heartwarming, and it is heartbreaking all at once. Sarah Vogel, for those of you who do not know her, is one of the foremost agricultural lawyers in the United States. She was the first woman ever elected Commissioner of Agriculture. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's really, really good to be
0: here. So Sarah, I'm going to to begin with a quote that's in the front of your book by William Jennings Bryan. Mm. Burn down your cities and leave our farms and your cities will spring up again as if by magic but destroy our farms and the grass will grow in the streets of every city in this country. What did William Jennings Bryan mean by that? And do you believe it?
1: I do believe it. And I think we see that today. Um, Much of the news of the day is what is happening in rural America. Why are the small towns in such and this is all over the country, but it's because farming, agriculture, the farmers go into town, they buy the seed, the fertilizer, the appliances, they 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 shop and they uh and then they grow and they produce and it's it's really worked out much better, but in in modern times uh, with the growth of the huge corporate farms, Mm -hmm. um, those um, they're they're just not supporting the the smaller towns, the medium-sized towns. And I think food is the basis. Uh, We need food, we need water, we need air and farmers are a solution to the food, the water and the air. And it all comes from the soil.
0: Yeah, and I think, and you're right, I think what William Jennings Bryan said over hundred years ago is as true as today. Yeah. farming is the backbone of the country. Everything starts with food. No food, no people, no nothing. And what, you know, you bring out in your book is how the family farm is disappearing, um, the big agricultural companies are taking over, and you talked, you know, you talked about what has happened with farmers from the 1930s into the 1980s and the 1980 farm crisis, and you know it's still continuing today. And we'll get into that. Um, what I'd like to start with, though, is just tell tell us a little bit about yourself. How you know, where did you grow up? Um, how did you end up being a lawyer? And how did your career take you, ultimately? to representing family farmers against the United States government?
1: Well, um, I was born in North Dakota and I was born into a little known political party called the Nonpartisan League. Um, They're the original, well, not the original prairie populace, but they got going in 1917. And at one point, the Nonpartisan League had complete control of the whole government of North Dakota, the House, the Senate, all of the elected officials. And when they were in control, they set up a a system of what you call economic democracy. Mm -hmm. They set up a state-owned bank that is celebrated over a hundred years. They have a state-owned mill and elevator. um, And their idea was that the state should partner with farmers and workers um, the union people, but the laborers were just much part of the league as the farmers. And uh, so they set up this model of economic democracy uh, that uh, it, it sort of inspired me um, my whole life. And in the 1930s, my grandfather was a, a politician and he worked with a significant governor of the time. They called him Wild Bill Langer, and he was actually like uh, a Columbia-educated lawyer, Columbia law-educated lawyer, first in his class, et cetera. But he came back to North Dakota, and, and he was like a phenomenal lawyer and was the governor at the time. And there were waves and waves and waves of foreclosures going on, and he declared a foreclosure moratorium. To stop the um, stop the flood of the losses of the farms, it was extremely serious. He, he thought FDR wasn't doing enough. Right. Um, and so, um, so I grew up with this philosophy. Um, and then after college, I went to law school at, at New York University, and then I did consumer protection work. I did a little stint in a, in corporations, in a bank, and in corporations, which was a great learning experience. Right. Um, when you see how, you know, there are certainly very good corporations, good citizen, good corporations, and there's some who are not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, I went to uh, Washington, D.C., and I was the first um, program head of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which was the first law that forbade discrimination in all kinds of credit, uh, commercial credit, consumer credit, uh, housing, um, all, all kinds of credit. And that's when I encountered for the first time the USDA and its little agency, not so little, it was the big agency called the Farmers Home Administration which made residential loans and farm loans. And that um, it was, it's so much in the news today. I think you may have heard about, you know, the um, demands of the, of the black farmers for, and the native American farmers for, uh, you know, recompense for all the discrimination that they occurred, incurred all, all, all these years. But I I knew this in um, 1977 and 78, because of all of the lenders, and we had thousands of lenders and we were receiving tens of thousands of complaints about discrimination. The worst was USDA. (laughs) So that sort of gave me an edge. uh, uh, So when the first farmer came in, and so this particular agency of USDA had treated him quite badly. I was certainly able and able able to believe it. It didn't sound at all implausible. And then um, after Reagan was elected, oh, and then I moved over to the Treasury Department, which was which was really kind of a fancy job. I was right down the hall from the secretary and. Um, eight in the secretary's dining room and was part of the upper upper management. I had a title, it was was a program set up by Jimmy uh, Carter that every secretary in his cabinet had to have a consumer affairs advisor to steer that cabinet member correctly on consumer issues. And I was it for treasury for a (laughs) while.
0: What? You had to, you had to leave the federal government in order to sue the federal government and represent oh, yeah. farmers.
1: Yeah. Well, and- I left like two days after Ronald Reagan got elected. Really quickly after he got elected because I I thought there there just isn't any way that he was going to support a consumer protection position. It was an executive order, and I thought it would expire. But that enabled me to work with farmers. And I moved back to North Dakota and the first farmer told other farmers and then pretty soon I was in, my phone was ringing from morning until night and uh, farmer after farmer, like in the back of your screen, there are uh, two, I'm talking to two farmers in a field and they were, amongst the first farmers I worked with but the story I kept hearing was the same about really abusive tactics and disregard of the law and disregard of the constitution
0: yeah and in you're
1: in your,
0: I just wanted to read something because it, it struck me it's in the prologue which you call but it's the call you got a call It says, in the summer of 1983, I was 37 years old, the single mother of a young son working to win the case of my life. All over the country, farmers were in crisis, drowning in debt, on the verge of losing everything. My phone never stopped ringing. I had seen a man who'd been farming for 30 years break down and cry helplessly in my office. I had watched younger men choke up over the death of their dreams. How bad was the farming crisis of the eighties and what what was causing it?
1: the um, i I still get choked up thinking about those those times. I mean it was very emotional. Um, what caused it, I think, was well um, it built up. I mean, interest rates were incredibly high. Um, there were big problems in the marketplace but the but the trigger, the fault line that that turned it from bad times to total crisis was a decision by the Reagan administration to reduce delinquencies in all federal loans by 20% in every single agency. And that included the Farmers Home Administration, which had been set up in the 30s by by, uh, President Roosevelt to be the compassionate uh, patient provider of low-cost credit. But with David Stockman and Ronald Reagan, they really didn't want to see that program There. They didn't want, they didn't think farmers should be borrowing from the federal government. And so they put this big crackdown. And all of a sudden, there were thousands of notices that went out to farmers saying, We won't lend to you anymore. And by the way, you owe all of the money that you borrowed and you have to pay it within 30 days. And in the meantime, we're not going to give you any money to feed your cattle to pay your electric bill to buy fuel you're done mm-hmm. you can you can um, quit or we'll take your farm two choices
0: and, this, um, and that that, would, that
1: was all over the country
0: right and it was i mean all the small and mid mid-sized family farms yeah the ones that were affected
1: they were Yes, there were roughly about 240,000 farmers nationwide um, who had borrowed from the Farmers' Home Administration. And they were the, they were the farmers that could not get credit elsewhere. They were, And over the years, Farmers' Home from the 30s on had had very low default rates because they, had, they were patient, they, they had good terms, they had people who cared, they were like social workers. And, and they did marvelous, marvelous work for decades. But under Ronald Reagan, that system was turned on its head and it became absolutely oppressive and, and harsh, um, unbelievably harsh. And these farmers had secured all their crops, their cattle, their um, buildings, a home, everything. Machinery to the Farmers Home Administration, and then Farmers Home said it's all due. Your loans are accelerated. We're coming, um, and they would show up with trucks and they would take stuff away. And there's a movie people may want to watch.
0: It, which one is <laughs> it's called The it? Movie
1: Country, and it's by Jessica Lange. Had the vision to make it,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: um, she starred in it and was nominated for the Academy Award. And it's a story of farmers, just like the farmers I worked with. Uh, and it's in a movie form. Country is the name of the movie. It's a great movie and it's absolutely accurate. And it just breaks. Well, it's too nice to the USDA at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but be that as it may, um, but it's pretty harsh um, but it, it shows the impact on, on family farmers, how, how that was.
0: So let's talk about what happened when Sarah Vogel gets involved and files this class action. Who did you file it against? Who were your plaintiffs? And how did it unfold? OK,
1: well, I filed it against, um, it was called, the case was called Coleman et al. versus Block. Right. And it was john block, he was the Secretary of Agriculture under Ronald Reagan, and my plaintiffs who we called ended up calling the North Dakota nine, I could tell you a little story of how the name North Dakota nine came about. Right. Yes, was,
0: please.
1: Um, they were, they were the lead plaintiffs in the class action you have to have representative plaintiffs who re- represent the whole class and um, and So, um, I just called them the lead plaintiffs um, and but many years later, when I at last was able to visit with the judge long after the case was over, he started talking about the North Dakota Nine, and I said, well, who are the North Dakota Nine, Um, who who are they? And he said, well, they're your lead plaintiffs, and how did that come about? he had uh heard about the Chicago Seven. <laughs>
0: okay. Was that Judge and Van Sickle?
1: That was Judge Van Sickle. He invented so
0: okay.
1: he had heard about um, the, 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 the <laughs> Chicago Seven who are the wild-eyed radical. Right. Um, and they they, they had this big, big prominent trial with with a with a <laughs> really bad judge, um, right. not like Judge Van Sickle. And, but he thought that these North Dakota nine farmers, in their very simple North Dakota farmer way, were just as radical and were sticking up for the, you know, for freedom, freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution um, in, in the same way as the Chicago Seven. So that's how the North Dakota nine okay. <laughs> it reminds me. It
0: reminds me of the saying in your book. Um, We've raised too much corn and not enough hell.
1: Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So they you change, you change
0: they, that though. You and your yeah, mind change.
1: Yeah. So these farmers were, um, they they've been treated so badly, and you know I had taken constitutional law and in law school I had great great teachers. Um, and I, and I knew the federal government because I'd been at the Federal Trade Commission, I'd been at the Treasury Department and I knew a lot about credit and I just couldn't believe how badly these farmers are being treated. So basically find out what the causes of action are and they were disregarding a federal law that said that whenever a farmer was unable to pay due to circumstances beyond his control, his or her control, then the government may provide a deferral as opposed to foreclosure. And um, Block had decided that that was a discretionary law. He didn't have to follow that. He didn't have to tell farmers about it. But the worst part was that the way they were collecting, they would have a, they would have a security agreement over all of the income from the farm, the wheat, the milk, the cattle, everything. And when they decided they were gonna shut somebody off, they accelerated the debt and not one penny went back to the farmer. And this came with no notice. All of a sudden, one day, the farmer's checks would bounce because they had supervised bank accounts and they'd just empty the bank account and they would stop releasing all money and they were electricity was disconnected um, wow people yeah. were calling up because they couldn't get their kids into the doctor their health insurance was being canceled it was um, it was horrible it was a constitutional violation so the difficult part of, and what the book talks a lot about is it isn't easy to sue the federal government. <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know. You
1: have to, you have to follow certain avenues that allow you to sue the federal government. You have to find the cause of action. You have to exhaust all administrative remedies, which was very difficult because the administrative remedy that was offered was so appalling. Um, it, the judge, the the, the hearing officer would oftentimes be the very person who had made the decision or worked right under the person who made the decision. And farmers just weren't winning, but they should have won. And they, they didn't care what the law was. I mean, I literally went into hearings and I said, well, this is the law. And they, they said, this is true. They said, we don't follow the law. Mm-hmm. We follow procedure. <laughs>
0: I want to I, I point one thing out. The farmers are in economic stress. They their their assets are taken. Their money is taken. They come to you to represent them. They can't pay you, so you end up with nothing. You end up living living in your father's house, and this battle becomes on the one hand, the United States government represented by the biggest law firm in the world, which is the Department of Justice. And on the other Sarah Vogel, her father, a prominent trial attorney and Supreme Court justice, and a couple other people. And ultimately, you prevail. How did that happen?
1: Well, uh, I have to give my father a lot of credit because um, he I figured this was this case was so extreme, and he was he was a sensible person. I thought if I so I hung out by myself, which was probably pretty rash, um, and always thinking that pretty soon some more money will come in. Well, it really it really didn't come in. But I, I went I went and worked for my father um, only after my own house had gotten the final note I tried to defend my own foreclosure which I did for a little while but it, it became hopeless and so so I called him up and I said can I come work for you which he'd been asking me to do for a couple of years and he said sure so I moved into my parents basement my son and I and he paid he paid my salary but by that point I had the complaint ready. I had exhausted most of the administrative remedies. I had the plaintiffs, and um, and so I was able to. Um, I, I told him. I said, "Well, the case is basically done." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was uh, certainly not true. But what did I, you know? But uh, yeah. he 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 grew up in the non league too, and his father was part of the the generation were fighting the foreclosures in the 30s. So he was very supportive. Um, so, and then I found other lawyers, uh, the litigation director of the national ACLU called and said, I hear you have quite the case. I found a class action lawyer, uh, Alan canner who is now one of the, You know, he is now probably the, the most prominent um, class action lawyer in the nation. And they came in and helped, and so we had a really good legal team, and we worked hard. And then we we did all our work undercover, so to speak. It was like we exhausted the ministry of remedies. We developed the briefs. We developed the complaint, and then we sprang it on the federal government because we had to. Right, because <laughs> they were they were. People were bringing cases all over the country, and with one exception, down in G- down in Georgia, farmers were losing. Right. Because the Department of Justice would just, you know, beat beat down little.
0: Yeah.
1: Private practitioners. So it was it was quite the drama. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and here's here's a part that I found very dramatic. I'm a trial lawyer. You're a trial lawyer. And, and I can tell people a trial lawyer's classic anxiety dream is you're notified by the court that you have a trial the next day. Yeah. You're not ready for. You got that call.
1: I got that call. Yeah, I'm, that, that, I'm, yeah. That made my
0: heart race when, when I read that.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it was. It was, it was perhaps the, anyway, what happened is that we had been maneuvering with all the motion practice and this and that, and then um, filed the case in May and it was all going our way. And in September, we were gonna have a summary judgment hearing, which in a hearing is not a trial. and and we'd agreed that it was all going to be done on the basis of affidavits and no need for witnesses. Right. I had that in writing, <laughs> the transcript. And then the day, and I've done all these briefs, big, fat briefs, 100-page briefs. Um, the, I got a call from the law clerk, thank God. And he said, And I I apologized. I said, well, I'll get my brief to you tomorrow morning. I'm driving in tonight.
0: And he said, no, I'm
1: not calling about the brief. I'm calling to find out what witnesses you're bringing to the trial tomorrow. And I just trial. He said, yes, the trial tomorrow. (laughs) And then, (laughs) so I I've never done a trial. I had never watched a trial. I, and I had 8,500 farmers relying on me, and my dad wasn't available, my co-counsel weren't available, and so I called my clients, and I said, show up, Mm -hmm. and we prepared in the morning, and I went and did the trial, (laughs) (laughs) and it was like, yeah, yeah. After the first day, when I walked out, I felt like I had been run over by a bus. I I just hurt. It was like, so I had the the nicest judge, too. But he he still had to be fair.
0: Right. Literally, the worst thing that every trial attorney fears. Yeah. You ultimately, (laughs) in the end, you ultimately prevailed. Right. Um, And I mean, your career is the stuff of legend. Um, And I want to ask you this because most lawyers go through their whole career and they never find a true cause. You know, they represent one client and another client and another client, but they never, they never find themselves in a position where there's an overarching cause that they can you know, claim as their own and, and fight a war for, you found that cause. You're one of the few lawyers who's been lucky enough to, to find that. And I guess my question is, how do you feel about that? I mean, you know, do you feel lucky because you found this cause? I mean, I know early on it was horrifically difficult in every possible way, financially, professionally, but now you're looking back on it. No. it, it would you do it all
1: over again, Sarah? I would, I would. The, uh, I, I gotta say that working with farmers has been one of the best experiences of my life because they're great clients. Um, they are, you know, they're all self-starters. You know, there's nobody telling them what to do. I mean, they're and they're linked to the land, and they they care deeply about what they're doing, and they're they're very proud of what they do. They feed the rest of us. so it's a it's a good feeling to help farmers. so i I loved working with farmers, and I work with farmers on very little issues, and I work with farmers on very big issues, and it's always been um a a very good experience Um, so I really liked I've, I've I've enjoyed that a lot and and also farmers are they're typically individuals and they're typically having to buy from great big corporations and they're having to sell to great big great big corporations so they're caught in the middle often in a vice but one of the nice things about being a lawyer for farmers is that there's a lot of commonality in their mistreatment so right. you can often find a lawsuit in that mistreatment so if, um so like one time a farmer called me the name of Danny Ova from Jamestown and I had a little message on my desk and he says Sarah call me right back they took away my 71 cents <laughs> was, well okay. Hey, I know Danny, I'll call him back 71 cents. What's the deal with the 71 cents? Well, it was turned out it was 71 cents per bushel of Durham wheat that he had okay. insurance on okay. and the government had signed a contract saying they would pay a certain amount. And then they had just decided to dock it by 71 cents. So that case turned into a $42 million case wow. because so many farmers had been mistreated in the same way. So one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that I really do want people to care about family farmers, to care about the family farm system of agriculture, which is under threat, and to remind people how important it is to have these individuals, uh, people close to the land who care about their animals I mean the the way my farmer, the farm actually, you know, my clients worked to take care of their animals. I mean, it, it was impressive. Um, so and the land, you know, a farmer that is hoping to pass his land on to his children and grandchildren is not going to be dumping chemicals into the river, into the creek. They're not. They're gonna be planting trees and trying to make the soil better. So there's a difference between corporate agribusiness and family farmers. Uh, so I, I really hope that the book will encourage lawyers to represent family farmers, to, for society to support family farmers and to um, straighten things out.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, let me, I mean, let me say, and you know, I have the book in the background behind me, and I have it here, it's it's harder to say, but um, it it opened my eyes to what goes on and has gone on with our farmers. It opened my heart. I would encourage everyone to read this book, um, whether you're a lawyer, a non-lawyer, or you're just interested in justice and injustice, and, and you like to read a story where Goliath is toppled by David um, this is your book. Uh, and, and I, and I mean that Sarah, and I'm, I'm honored to have read the book and I'm honored that you're on the podcast. Um, is the book, I mean, I got an advanced copy is the book out now and when, and where can people get it?
1: The book will be out. The release date is November 2nd and okay. it's going to be out nationwide. You can go online. It's for sale. At local bookstores, um, a bookshop, I think bookshop, which is the outlet for independent bookstore booksellers, people mm-hmm. can go to their local indie indie bookstores. They can go to um, Walmart, Amazon, you name it. The book is out there, so people, please do pre-order it. And yeah. Yeah. Make, to make a little pitch, <laughs> in a no, few weeks know. we're going to get the North, re, the surviving North Dakota nine. Together, along with the legal team, um, my father is, is passed away. But uh, Alan and Bert, the the class action and the constitutional lawyer, and I, we're all going to be on a little reunion uh, on Zoom, uh, November tenth or eleventh. It's I have a website, sarahm.vogel.com, and it's got a lot of information and also a lot of reading, so people can find out about the nonpartisan league and the philosophy and the, the issues of today and stuff like that
0: okay Sarah. Oh, get the book yeah yes get the book um let me let me sign off my name is bill myers uh you can get me at williamlmyersjr.com this is the podcast writing wrongs on the authors on the air global radio network and it's been my honor to uh, speak with sarah vogel today sarah thank you for um, for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for asking me. It's been a privilege and it's been fun talking. Thank you.
0: Okay, me too. Thank you, everyone.